So, you know, one of the things uh, here on Breaking Kayfabe that we have discussed, Barry, Lou, and myself uh, in the past recent weeks is uh, Barry just came back from vacation. I'm getting ready to go on a vacation. And we always kind of say to one another, well, we'll be on vacation uh, unless something major happens, you know, uh, somebody major passes away. And uh, we had finished recording uh, our episode 197 uh, yesterday, and today we received the tragic news of the passing of Paul Orndorff, uh, legendarily known as Mr. Wonderful. Barry, you know, you often say that if you ever get a chance to meet your your heroes, the legends of pro wrestling, you definitely should take a chance, uh, take the chance and go do that. I am fortunate enough to have been when I was part of the South Florida dinners uh, to have sat and had dinner with Paul Orndorff. Uh, he was in, you know. Uh, Jesus is like four or five years ago, Barry, uh, you know, he was not in the greatest health, but it was, you know, it wasn't like something was imminent. It was just like, he really was. I think he had survived cancer at that point. If I, yeah. if I remember correctly, uh, but he was a really nice man. He was so giving of his time with me and my friends. And, uh, I have nothing, nothing but fond memories of Paul Orndorff, Barry. Yeah. And you were right too. So he, uh, He's been he's been ill, I think, for many years, and uh, he went through a bout, and I want to say it was like, I think it was glandular cancer. Yeah, so, something like that. Yeah, it was something maybe not not in the ordinary, a little out of the ordinary, and I believe there was a form of dementia, and I got to meet him, and it was probably right after you had your dinner, maybe a year later, and uh, I met him through a mutual friend. We discussed the potential of him coming down to CWF legends fan fest. And as I was talking with him, I realized that there were some serious issues there. And I, uh, it's always been my stance that I never want to put somebody in front of the public that is, uh, either suffering from dementia or possibly it's drug related, which was not the case here. But if there's ever a caveat to it, I, I, I never want to be somebody that might be profiting, even if that profit is very small off of somebody that might be impaired, whether it's uh, natural or not. So I, I talked with Paul, but I kind of made the decision like I, I couldn't put him in front of people cause it just wouldn't seem right. He was obviously not, not doing well. And, uh, I guess the video surfaced maybe a two weeks ago, Jeff, a week ago, probably two weeks ago. And the video was completely devastating and heartbreaking. If you saw it, he was almost unrecognizable, certainly did not appear that it would be long for this earth. And then surprisingly, over the last few days, there was a photo that was posted where I guess his son had taken him from the, uh, the hospice that he was in. That's where he was drinking the beer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he looked, he looked like the old Mr. Wonderful. Yep. I want to be honest. I, I question if that was a new photo or if that was an older photo, because he looked like Mr. Wonderful in that photo. And if you had seen that video, it just doesn't seem like he could have gotten to that based off of the contents of that video. So, uh, his son also posted something that I thought was a little bit heartbreaking was that, uh, it appeared that his, his his entire family had just forgotten about him and put him in this hospice or this this nursing home, and he was determined to try to save his dad's life. And uh, I we don't know all the circumstances, but I got to tell you, this guy, I you know, it, I, there were times when I played armchair Booker Jeff, uh, certainly not to the the degree of success that you had with it, but I would have 
made Mr. Wonderful NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. And this would have been either during his time with Crockett or possibly uh, during his time on TBS. I think he was National Heavyweight Champion. He had the look. He could work in the ring. His promo skills weren't the best for the NWA. You really needed that. But I just thought he had everything going for him. And he truly, my opinion, this guy looked like a world's heavyweight champion, the guy that you'd want to put on, uh, put the strap on. So, I, you know, it's always so sad to me. And, and you know, you mentioned it. And uh, if you ever get the chance to meet your heroes, your legends, anybody that's made an impact in your life in any form, wrestling, non-wrestling, doesn't matter. Uh, even if it's us, Jeff, especially you, because you're you're an author, you've written two books. Meet these people because uh, it, tomorrow may not come, as we're seeing. It, this is just you know it's it's devastating on so many levels. So I I thought I was a huge Mister Wonderful. Were you you know did you watch him in the early days of the WWF, Jeff? I first discovered Paul Orndorff really in Georgia uh, when he was uh, you know being pushed as. Pretty much the lead babyface. I was just reading a uh, an article, an obituary that uh, Greg Oliver had written uh, about the way that Paul Orndorff left Georgia was that he apparently had, I want to say he like injured his foot or something like that. He missed a show in Augusta. He showed up at the Omni and uh, he was he was informed by Ole Anderson, the booker, that he was fired because he had missed the show. Wow. And uh, yeah, and, and uh, it was kind of a crazy story. But, you know. One story about Paul North that sticks out to me is I went to see Ric Flair wrestle uh, Butch Reed at the West Palm Beach Auditorium. Now, you you have to understand, this is when Butch Reed was really first getting a push. So he was not like an established star uh, that had been on, you know, the national stage. And, you know, and I, I'm not poo-pooing Butch Reed. He was great at that point, but he wasn't. He didn't necessarily have a national name. Let's put it that way. And so uh, he and Flair had a really, really good match. And, you know, it was like one of those where Flair just held on to the title kind of thing. And so as Flair is walking back to the dressing room and, you know, Flair, he's got the belt and he's kind of he's doing that little drag of the foot to sell, you know, that he was hurt. And as he was, you know, the, the crowd was parting and Flair was walking back. I still to this day and and Barry, this is almost 40 years ago. I remember somebody in the crowd going wow, this is what Butch Reed did to you. Paul Orndorff is going to kill you because that's how over Paul Orndorff was at that point. And Barry, you're absolutely right. He would have made a tremendous NWA world champion because uh, as a baby face, eh, you know, and so often we say, oh, this guy could have been a good short-term champion. Now, Paul Orndorff could have been a good long-term champion absolutely. because one of the things that you you look for is a guy First of all, that you can put with the belt and that you can trust to carry that belt. And, you know, guys like Harley Race and Jack Briscoe and Terry Funk, guys that Luthez, that you know that nobody was going to F with them while they carried that belt. And Paul Orndorff, let me just tell you, Paul Orndorff had a, a reputation of being a guy you did not want to trifle with because he could destroy you. And, you know, at, you know the story about... His locker room situation with uh, with Va Big Van Va Vader, uh, when Vader was in the prime of his career and Paul had been retired for a couple of years, uh, legendary story uh, where Paul beat him up with a flip flop or something like that or a sandal. Uh, Paul Orndorff was definitely a badass, and uh, good lord, his his feud with Hogan was uh, you know uh, things involving Hulk Hogan that I liked. 
his program with Paul Orndorff I liked because that was so good. Uh, and of course, the legendary moment where he turns on Hogan and, you know, Vin Jesse Ventura starts laughing and Vince McMahon goes, you knew it all along, Jesse, as uh, Jesse is laughing because Orndorff is is putting it to, you know, Hulk Hogan. Just great stuff. And, and wow, this is, uh, you know, it, I think he was like 71. And I'm sorry, 71 is too soon. And, uh, you know, this guy, what a legacy. His son, uh, you know, in the thing you mentioned, uh, mentioning and talking about his father and how proud he was of his father. And he absolutely should have been proud of his father because his father was an, you know, the, the term pro wrestling legend gets thrown around sometimes, uh, Barry, uh, maybe a little too easily. But Paul Orndorff was definitely a pro wrestling legend. Mr. Wonderful, you will be missed, my friend. Barry and I, we asked the rest of the group. Uh, and the listeners to raise an adult beverage to the memory of the great Paul Orndorff. Welcome, everybody, to episode 197, 197 episodes, Barry, because we as we will discuss on this show, we are givers. We are givers to you, the uh, the fans of this fine Peabody and Sherman award-winning podcast. Joining me today, my friend, Barry Rose. Barry, finally, good Lord, I'm looking at my watch, finally back from vacation, Barry. Yeah, that had to be, I think, and I started doing, I think that's the longest vacation I have ever taken. And I got to say, Zoe, Zoe, who was already in Florida, Zoe was literally four weeks on vacation, so... Yeah, a lot of fun, and uh, I, I want to tell you it's good to be back, but I already miss being on vacation, Jeff. I'm going to guess that maybe at least one day was spent at the beach or by the pool. Is that <laughs> accurate? Yeah, only one. That's okay. right. Only one. So, And on this fine edition of the episode today, folks, we're going to be, our match of the week, taking us back to November 12th, 1980, Mr. Class Nick Bockwinkle taking on Barry's childhood hero, Billy Robinson, and a, a classic that goes the full Broadway, Barry. We, uh, we have good things to talk about that match. Oh, the folks have been waiting for this. I'm going to be reviewing the Fast and Furious movie, F9, uh, the, 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 the saga or whatever. I'll be offering some pithy commentary on that, Barry. We'll be looking at this date in CWF history, and we will be joined by friend of the show, Dale Spear, to piggyback, I believe that's the first time we've ever used the word piggyback on this uh, oh. final broadcast, Barry. Piggyback last week's uh, NBA Top 10. Dale apparently formerly covered the Orlando Magic for NPR Radio. And so we're going to be talking a little uh, behind the scenes stuff that happened in the NBA in the early 90s. And uh, Dale's going to be offering some commentary on who he thinks belongs on that Top 10 list. Barry, what do you say? You ready to go, my man? This sounds like it's going to be an exciting episode, Jeff. Uh, you know, because I, I remember, I think it was episode 159 wasn't a real great one. The rest right. of them are great, but that was that was like very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. so, you know, but uh, episode 197, I guarantee, is going to be a barn burner. Let's get going, Mr. Rose. So, Barry, real quick, I just want to mention that uh, the passing of a Hollywood legend, as far as I'm concerned, the great William Smith uh, actor, he did stunts, a uh, character actor of, of some renown. But to me, 
you know, I posted a picture of William Smith and I was surprised at how many people said, oh, like, geez, he was in Laredo. I think John Hitchcock said he was in Laredo. Uh, a couple other people talking about other films he'd been in. But for me, William Smith, although a lot of the younger people will know him from Clint Eastwood and uh, any which way you can. But to me, William Smith will always be from rich man, poor man, Falconetti, one of the great heels in the history of television. Amazing performance. Barry, any memories of William Smith? Yeah, absolutely. William Smith is, when you said to me, I think I was driving uh, and you said William Smith, Rip, and I said the actor, common name William Smith, and it was immediately, I was like, fuck, you mean the the guy from Red Dawn is yep. dead? Yep. And I was just like, God, and here's the crazy thing. I, I want to say I Googled William Smith's name, I don't know, a month or two ago, like fairly recently. And uh, what a body of work. I mean, you know, just Conan the Barbarian, uh, you know, uh, so many movies. He, he was, was what was he not the young Conan's father? He was the young Conan's the father. Yeah, yeah. In that 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 great movie called Piranha, which is really one of my oh, favorite B movies. A classic, a classic. In The Outsiders. So really working with the Brat Pack, if that's what they were, twice. Uh, Red Dawn and the Outsiders, but also there is a wrestling connection, Jeff, and you know we here on Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, the three best friends you never knew you had. We do love the wrestling connection. He also had a featured role in the great film from 1988, Hell Comes to Frogtown, starring Roddy Piper. Roddy uh, Piper is Sam Hell, if I remember correctly. Sam Hell. This is a, a great name for a character, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely. So he's been, you know, you start going through. I t also to go back, he's also in Rumblefish. So it, there's obviously a Coppola connection and an S.E. Hinton connection here also uh, as I'm going through platoon leader. But uh, just, you know, I, it's it's immeasurable the amount of movies and TV shows. And I don't he was never truly a lead actor, maybe in some of these no. smaller, right. Some of these smaller movies, he may have gotten that larger role, you know, maybe second or third billing. But the truth was, this was a character actor, but boy, we, are we talking prolific, Jeff? We are oh, man. prolific. So yeah, he's, he's one of those guys that if I went up to somebody and I said, Hey, uh, is your William Smith died? They'd probably look at me and go, wait, well, yeah, William Smith. And then you show the picture of William Smith and they go, Oh, that guy. Yeah. I've seen a million of his movies. And yep. because as you said, he was very prolific. So as we are wont to do here on a brewery and keep about it and Barry, uh, uh, Barry and I will raise an adult beverage to the memory of the great William Smith Falconetti. You will be missed my friend. So very perfect segue from talking about the career <laughs> of a great actor, William right. Smith. Let me segue to maybe not such a great thing. Oh, Barry, the wife and I had a chance to go out to the theater. It's nice going out to the theater again. My wife goes, I really didn't care about the movie. She goes for the popcorn. Uh, we uh, we had the, I don't want to say misfortune because it wasn't really misfortune. But oh, Barry, we went and see, saw the new Fast and Furious movie. And uh yeah, I got some people on the boards uh, that told me they're waiting to hear my review of the new Fast and Furious movie as, oh, the Lord, please, our God, Vin please, Diesel. Jeff, tell us we want a deep, intrinsic review of, is it, this is Fast and Furious number 47 in the franchise? It's F9, the Fast Saga. Ah. Okay. Ah. Uh, so, first of all, here's where you know you're in trouble 
as an actor, do we really call Vin Diesel an actor or is he more like a movie star? Because when Vin Diesel is outacted by John Cena, that's when you know you're in a little bit of trouble. So in this one, you know, we sometimes I, w- I would joke and I'd say, well, what's next for the Fast Five or Fast and Furious, uh, uh, you know, the, the landscape those people live in? Is it time for them to go to space? I joked about that two years ago. And in this movie, they go to space, Barry. <laughs> go, I'm not even kidding. I'm not They're, even kidding. All right. They go to space, but here's where it gets better, Barry. All right. They go to space with a rocket attached <laughs> to a Pontiac Fiero. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. A Pontiac Fiero. Oh. oh. So what they do is they manage to tie literally – uh, there was only, I think, one, maybe two people that I thought about from the history of the franchise that were not in. Obviously, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, your uh, childhood friend, uh, not part of this because apparently he and Ben got a little bit of a heat. Okay, yeah. It and, couldn't have been the plot of a fucking car going down her space that would have caused him to say no, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, well, no, no, before this, uh, apparently there is some legitimate animosity. Uh, I can't imagine, you know— uh, uh, and also uh, the great actor, uh, cinematic uh, icon, Tyrese, uh, Tyrese Gibson. <laughs> apparently, he's got a little bit of heat with The Rock, too. And oh. he apparently made it known that if The Rock's on this film, I'm not coming on this picture. It would have been a tremendous loss sure, sure to, he did. to sure. the world Ty- of cinema. Tyrese, whose who's resume has yes. got many great films. <laughs> he's going to turn down a payday of a million dollars. I would, with my worst, I don't have any worst enemies, but if I did, Jeff, I would work with every single one of them for a million dollars. Yes. So let's be <laughs> candid. When you go see this movie, are you going to see, uh, you know, a, a, a work by the great cinema artist of all times? No, this is not John Ford. This is not Fellini. Uh, this is not Orson Welles doing Citizen Kane. This is stupid Vin Diesel and Justin Lin making a Fast and Furious movie, okay? So you know that going in. And for those of you out there going, oh, it's, a, it's a, a stupid Fast and Furious movie, uh, Booker. Of course, I realize that. And we go in there with those expectations, but literally... Half the movie is taken up with Mrs. Bowder and I turning and looking at one another and laughing because the the shit they're throwing out there is so ridiculous. Uh, John Cena suddenly coming on board the franchise as Vin's younger brother. And, uh, you know, of course, the the fact that there is apparently there's no physical similarity. (laughs) Okay. And and so then, of course, uh, there's other ridiculous plot. Uh, twist that come on. Uh, there, there's a character. I won't spoil it in case there's if somebody out there that wants to see this movie. There is a character that literally is brought back from the dead. Okay. Uh, I did not see any sort of, uh, you know, uh, exorcist, uh, necromancer, nothing that would uh, result. But this guy, they they create a plot line so that this guy has br- been brought back from the dead. It's actually pretty funny the way they do it. Uh, there's lots of, uh, as usual, car races. Uh, of course, it gets even more ridiculous because uh, there is a uh, a chase scene that involves, uh, you know, I don't know if it's like a uh, like a, a tank or, or a, some sort of like multi-purpose military vehicle that they're trying. Hey, you know, Vin's got his Dodge Charger and he's got this tank and he's bumping into the damn thing like his fucking Dodge Charger. And by the way, every town that they go to in this movie, somehow Vin has a Dodge Charger made available to him. I don't know if the government's got some kind of fleet of Dodge Chargers and they all have marked on their, uh, you know, reserve this. 
uh, for Dominic Toretto uh, in case he needs it. Uh, he's flying down to Argentina next weekend. I don't know. Uh, so this was a completely fucking ridiculous movie, okay? Did parts of me enjoy it because of the stupidity? You know, uh, yes, it, it's stupidly enjoyable, but you literally have to leave your brain at the ticket window because if you go in there, maybe, maybe that's my mistake. Maybe I'm expecting rational, coherent thought, okay? And it's just not happening in this movie, okay? And uh, I'm trying to think of who else is uh, unbelievably stupid. Uh, oh, Charlize Theron is in the movie, which she's gorgeous. Very short haircut. I, I, I'm not really digging the short haircut in this. But, uh, you know, um, there's uh, other people that are, that, like I said, they bring the family back together. Because, of course, Barry, as we've learned, if you ever watch any of the Fast and Furious movies, you know nothing is more important than family, Barry. That is Dominic Toretto's uh, buzz line. By the way, lots of memes out there with, uh, you know, Dom in space uh, saving the astronauts because, you know, you got a family is more important than NASA and uh, all these ridiculous things. So uh, I will not give this a glowing recommendation, as you might have uh, surmised by now. Uh, if you want to see a stupid movie, uh, I would recommend watching this. Wait till it comes on like HBO Max or or something like that, because quite frankly, Mrs. Bowdrin and I went to see it because Mrs. Bowdrin wants popcorn and eh, maybe I wanted a Slurpee or two and we wanted to be, uh, you know, have our senses dulled. You can't get much more dull than F9, the Fast and Furious Saga, Barry. Have you seen one of these films even? Not even one. So Not I even have, one. You're I, a better man because of it, my friend. I, absolutely. And it's uh, it's it, Vin Diesel. And I, you make a great point. Vin Diesel is a movie star. If he's an actor, then he has mastered one single role because that's he's literally the same guy in every film I've ever seen him in or any clip or anything I've ever seen him in. Uh, you bring up two good points. One is seeing or I should say Mrs. Bowdrin, seeing a movie in a movie theater to me is really maybe one of the things that I miss the most. And uh, I, I've talked about I'm scheduled to go out to Los Angeles later this year if I'm still employed, which I'm certainly on my knees begging right now to stay employed. But first time you've that, been on your knees, Bear? I'm just curious. Oh, only in the last 20 minutes. It'll okay, be the first time. You. But yeah, but uh, it is uh, they've closed so many of the movie theaters out in Los Angeles. So many of the really great ones. That was one of the highlights for me is being able to go to these these stellar movie theaters, whether it's, you know, one of these that's 50 or 60 or 70 years old. That's been restored. Or even if it's something like the Cinerama Dome, which is, you know, the the movie theater in Los Angeles still closed to this day. The second point you bring up was about how ridiculous, you know, the premise of this film is. And it immediately reminded me of a great story uh, from probably five, six years ago. And I, I want to preface it by saying my soon-to-be ex-mother-in-law couldn't be a nicer human being. There, she literally is the Mother Teresa of uh, of of mother-in-law. So she's a great person. Well, she put up with you. I mean, let's be honest. But I'm pretty easy overall, to be honest well, with okay. you. I'm kind of, yeah, I don't, the truth is, you know, put me in a room, give me some pizza and lock, lock the door. I'm fine. But uh we were we were having a discussion and you're familiar with the Sharknado series of films. Oh, yes, of course. Now, I I got to tell you, I love the Sharknado series of films and I certainly accept them for what they are. And they were releasing one that was with uh, I guess it was David Hasselhoff was in this one. And I, he may be in a bunch of them, which I think he is. But uh, they, this was the one where Sharknado in space. Yes. And. 
uh, and of course, the premise of Sharknado is that there are these tornadoes that form that carry sharks and then deposit them on the earth and they kill people. And each one is more ridiculous than the next. They go to Universal Studios and theme parks and kill people. So we're, we're discussing that this is the night that it's debuting on Sci-Fi Network. And with a serious look on her face, she looks at me and says, sharks are going down her space. Don't you think this is getting a little ridiculous now? And I, as so opposed I, to when they were in tornadoes. Yeah, yeah. So I stared at her for about 30 seconds. And then I said, yeah, I think you're right. It is getting ridiculous with the emphasis on the word now. Like, you know, like now it's stupid. So, uh, yeah. But the other thing you said, too, about John Cena as an actor. I John Cena got a lot of hate for years. And I think a lot of it, some of it was probably accurate. And some of it was, I think, people just felt like the train seems to be on John, on hating John Cena. I'm going to jump on the train. And I just became a part of it. And uh, I, I've always liked John Cena as a as a wrestler. I guess he wasn't my cup of tea. But at the same time, I, I got to tell you, it, and I bring this up because I'm going to get tears in my eyes when I say this. When Zach was emerging as a budding wrestling fan some many years ago, 10, 12 years ago, John Cena was his favorite. And, uh, you know, I could try to show him Abdullah the Butcher and Bruce. He didn't care about that. John Cena was the one. And John Cena, he spoke to young fans, which is, you know, I think that's exactly who he was geared towards. And uh, I surprised Zach for his birthday that John Cena was coming into Philadelphia to do a meet and greet. And I gave him what was essentially a golden ticket uh, to get an autograph and a photo and get to meet John Cena. And uh, this was such an impactful day. So he waited like four months, something five months. And we took him and it was in Philadelphia. And we stood in line 45 minutes, maybe long time. And when he got up there, he got to meet John Cena. And John Cena looks at him and he says, hey, champ, would you mind holding my belt today? And this was when he was the world champion and he gave him the title. And you got to realize Zach was about 12. He was a 12-year-old boy. And Zach took a photo. And I got to tell you, and I, I, I'll find this photo, it was the biggest smile I have ever seen on a human being in my life. And it literally, uh, it literally went ear to ear. And you'll see, when it was over and we walked away, Zach broke down in tears. He was 11 or 12. And he broke down in tears because this was such a huge moment for him. You know, this was everything he had built up to meet his hero and, and to be able to say hello. And John Cena didn't disappoint because even though there was 700 people, 800 people there, there that day to meet him, he spent time with everyone, especially if they're kids, uh, and made everybody feel good. And, and you know, it, as, a, as a parent, I walked away and I said, that that's what it's about. It's like, you know, here's, Here's a role model for my child who has, you know, he is a role model on every level that you just don't read much scandal about. There's not really a lot out there. And it's somebody that my child could look up to. And it was somebody that, you know, it just made my son so happy, so happy that he was able to meet him. So I'll always be based off of that long winded story. I'll always be a huge John Cena fan and on some level. Well, I have to say that, uh, you know, if you are not a fan of John Cena, the wrestler, you know, everybody's got their own people sure. that they're into and they're not into. And it, on that level, if you don't like John Cena, that's fine. If you don't like John Cena, the human being, yep. there's something wrong with you. Because let me tell you something. This guy 
has done, as a matter of fact, I watched a video this morning about it, has done more work with the Make-A-Wish Foundation for uh, handicapped children, children that are dying. And he spends time with them. And Barry's absolutely, Barry, you're 100% correct. Check. Check. Thank you. Uh, that he spends, he doesn't just like do the meet and greet. Hey, how you doing, Jay? There you go. See you later. On to the next kid. No, he sits and talks with these kids. He makes them feel important. He made your son feel important. Yes. And that's that's a gift that this guy has. And the other thing I love about John Cena when he makes movies is John Cena, I have seen him in films, be willing to make fun of himself. And I love that about, you know, I've said it before on this show, one of the huge mistakes that Steven Seagal made as an action film star is that he was afraid to make fun of himself ever. And part of it was because apparently in real life, Steven Seagal is a huge asshole, but (laughs) You know, I mean, look at how many times Schwarzenegger made fun of himself. Sure. You know, he did a movie called Twins where his twin was Danny DeVito, for God's sakes, you know, and that really made Schwarzenegger more human and it made people like Schwarzenegger. It also extended Schwarzenegger's career by how long was it? You know, and John Cena, I, was, I saw something else the other day where John Cena, it's a movie with, I, I think it might have been Amy Schumer and where they're like in a movie theater or something like that. And some guy is is giving him crap that's in the next row behind him. And he calls him Mark Wahlberg. And, and the line in the movie is John Cena goes, Mark Wahlberg? What are you kidding? I'm 250. Mark Wahlberg's maybe a buck 50. And I'm completely ripped. But, but he's making fun of himself because the guy's called him Mark Wahlberg. Now, imagine in that scene if it was Steven Seagal. Steven Seagal would have told the writer, uh, I'm not going to have myself compared to uh, Mark Wahlberg. He's completely different from me. You know, it's like get a hold of yourself and and have some fun with you know your yourself as an actor or something like that. And that's something that makes me completely appreciate somebody like uh, John Cena, as opposed to Vin Diesel. As we wrap up this segment, Barry, who apparently does not believe it. I, I don't know if Vin Diesel believes this about himself, but apparently he doesn't believe that Dominic Toretto can ever so much as crack a smile or make a joke about somebody because he has to be serious 100% of the time because he's dumb. You know, like I walked into the theater with my wife. I said, honey, do you want me to go out and uh, buy a wife beater t-shirt and, uh, you know, and start mumbling my words to you and speaking in one and two word sentences like Dom Toretto does? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, it's all about family. You know, that that's like seemingly the whole fucking, I remember when Vin Diesel made Saving Private Ryan and he was like, Oh, this guy's a pretty good actor. Maybe he's got a future. And sure. what happened since then? Tell well, me he was, a, wasn't he? He was in the movie. Was it Boiler Room? I uh, will bow to your better knowledge. I know he did Triple X. You know, yeah, which I, is, think, I think he was in Boiler Room, and I think Ben Affleck. And I, that was where I first. He he was, I guess, a semi lead, maybe the second or third build, and that's where I noticed Saving Private Ryan. I don't even remember him even being in there. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Uh, Wait till it comes on HBO Max or something like that. That's my film review. And uh, all you people that were expecting this review, I could have gone on for a lot longer, but I'll save you the grief. So, uh, Barry, I got a great story for you before we go to our match of the week. Uh, So, you know, as you know, I'm starting to round down the turn and heading for home on the old physical therapy on my shoulder bear. And uh, so uh, my uh, physical therapist, Amy, uh, was uh, telling me that she recently had to travel up to PA to uh, to visit oh. with her parents. Her parents getting ready to move down to Georgia. But she told me this story, Barry, that she said the worst part of her trip was that when they got to the airport and they arrived at the airport to pick up, oh, Barry, here we go, 
the rental car. Ah. The rental car that she had the reservation for, she had to wait two hours for them to have a car arrive so that she could get the car to rent it and use it. And I, I looked at her as she's telling me the story, and I said, wait a minute, so what you're saying is they could take the, the reservation. Barry, what could they not do? They could not keep the reservation. Exactly, yes. Uh, so uh, poor poor Amy with a two-hour, I, and I told Jeff, my wife, I said, I'm sure that I would have been extremely patient and not upset at all at having to wait two hours. Jeff, and the question begs, did she get insurance so she could beat the hell out of that car? <laughs> yes. So <laughs> I take all the insurance I can get. <laughs> exactly. So I'm going to beat the hell out of that car. Yeah. So, uh, but a fun story. And, and apparently uh, I have to say that uh, at the time uh, this uh, fine Peabody and Sherbin award-winning uh, podcast airs, my wife and I getting ready to travel down. Uh-oh. I'm just going to say do South bear. That's all I'm going to say. Very and exciting. we were considering flying. Don't but Mrs. Bowdrin said no, in part because the lines at TSA are so ridiculous. Yep. Uh, and not only that, but when you get through to it, if you have to go to the rental cars, the rental cars are so, you know, everyone's understaffed. There's no cars. It's the prices are ridiculous on how you how much you pay for a rental car. So, you know, we said, eh, let's just drive. So we're driving. Uh, Jeff, the stories right now that I heard on my vacation I, so I was in the Universal Studios, uh, Florida, Sapphire Falls Hotel for five days. Name and, and Oh, absolutely. And I was in room uh, 2820, uh, which is, there's now a shrine to Ozzy in this room, apparently. But uh, it, when, you know, it's a dog-friendly hotel, and uh, Ozzy was... Uh, Ozzy was like the mayor of the hotel. So I got to talk to a lot of people uh, all throughout the time, it, you know, and all these stories I heard of people showing up at the airport, their flight is delayed by four hours, and then the flight is canceled. Then you just got to get your shit. You got to go back home and hope for another day because they're not putting you on another flight. So, you you know, it, they don't make it easy. They're not making it easy. And I, it's, you know, there were it's, all these stories. It was just incredible. Another guy, I had a seven hour delay on, on American Airlines. Like now we're not talking you know, one of your $99 one-way airlines on a major airlines. And these stories continue. And I, I mentioned to you, I drove down to Florida and my drive down was great. My drive back, not as great. But at the end of the day, I, I'd still rather be in my own car sitting in horrific traffic than at the mercy of one of these airlines. So yeah, I, I support your decision uh, to, to drive. Well, I appreciate you supporting me, Barry. I support you and yes. Mrs. Bowdrin. Thank you. So now, Barry, it is time for us to go to our match of the week. So Barry Rose is on vacation. I know he's going to go, you know, basically whatever you want to say. He's going to go dark on me. He's going to go in country. I'm not going to have a lot of success getting Barry to do work for this fine show. So what am I going to do, Barry? Because I'm a giver. Because I'm a giver. And I give you the olive branch of friendship and brothership. I give you a Billy Robinson match. We have Billy Robinson taking on... Oh, Mr. Beverly Hills, Mr. Class, Nick Bockwinkle. This is from Japan, November 12th, 1980. Barry, you had a chance to watch your hero as a youth, Billy Robinson, take on Mr. Classy, Nick Bockwinkle. Tell the folks what you thought. So this is a great, I mean, by my standards of what I look for in professional wrestling, this is a great match. I, I, I think the first thing when I'm watching this match makes me think is the newer generation of fans 
that has been conditioned to the current product or the product of maybe the last 10 or 20 years, are they going to view a match that's 40 years old like this and go, this is a good match? And I'm not sure that they would. Uh, I'm not sure that this is going to be what a lot of people are actually looking for. Again, for me, you've got Billy Robinson. I've said it a, a million times, my favorite professional wrestler of all time. Uh, just a tremendous talent. Then you got Nick Bockwinkle. And I mean, really, you know, we've praised Nick Bockwinkle. I know that there, you know, some people think we may have taken a shot about the AWA, but that, that wasn't it. Nick Bockwinkle was as good as anyone that has ever stepped into the ring, in my opinion. So you put these two guys together. Uh, these are two guys that have worked together, you know, hundreds, maybe a thousand times. I don't know what the number is, but a lot. These guys worked, whether singles, whether tag matches, they always continually worked together and they knew how to work together. And there was something that you said to me about this, and it was the word respect. And you can see it in this match because Billy Robinson as much as I loved him, did have a reputation, Jeff. He could be tough to work with. If he didn't respect you or like you, he would take liberties with you. I think the uh, phrase was a little salty. He's uh, yeah, a little salty. You know, we had Bob Roop on our, our fantastic uh, two-parter, the Roopening credit to Rick Nathan, uh, two-parter Patreon interview going almost four hours. And he basically said he didn't like Billy, didn't like working with him and didn't respect him because he felt that if a guy ever took liberties with somebody, that that wasn't the right way to do things that made you a bully. And I'm not going to disagree, but I can tell you as a fan, I loved watching Billy. But yes, Salty Jeff, he was salty. and uh, But that did make for good matches, at least from a fan's perspective in viewing those. So this is really good. These guys work really snug. Uh, and there's a great back and forth between these two. And it's not that, what you see, and I'm not, you know, I watch current wrestling, so I'm not knocking the product, but it's almost like when they do the false finishes now and there's this back and forth, it's obvious how choreographed it is that this is, you know, none of this between Robinson and Bockwinkle was choreographed or laid out. These were two guys that got in the ring as professional wrestlers did in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and laid it out in the ring. And I got to tell you, this is the kind of match you watch and it builds and it builds to when the ending finally comes, you're like, wow, th this was, this has been really solid. So I, I would give this, you know, one of my highest recommendations with the caveat, I know this match won't be for everybody, but those who do get it are going to love it. I think, uh, if you were to rate this, uh, as high as you did, you're going to have to take off at least a full star because of uh, Billy's perm that uh, we have to address <laughs> Billy's perm. We do a we horrible, do. horrible idea. Whoever convinced Billy to get a perm. <laughs> I think Billy, Billy probably got the perm in Billy to, you know, he did have a perm in his later years. And we should say too, I, I think uh, Billy at this point was uh, he was on the downside of his career, uh, his best days in Bachwinkle was probably just approaching the downside of his career though you really couldn't tell that uh but i do it wasn't like two old guys trying no, desperately not, to hang on not at all. but yeah. billy I, I would say by the early 80s there was a definite a definite drop off for for billy i mean i i, I saw a couple of awa matches from 82 or 83 and this was not the same guy from you know six seven years ago so there was but you're look this is not a uh, a legends you know over 50 type of match by any stages i agree with that yeah 
Uh, I really enjoyed this match a lot. And as I watched it, I, I found myself uh, thinking that this, this is the kind of stuff that I grew up watching. You know, the, the fact that this was like presented as, and whether it was, you know, they would have done this in the AWA or whether it was just because it was in Japan. This was presented as an athletic contest between two guys that were fighting to get the win. Uh, you know, I, I've mentioned before, like when you are watching this match and you're sitting there thinking this, I don't want to say this is a UFC match because, you know, it, obviously it's not that. But, you know, the way that uh, a good boxing match from like the 70s or the early 80s, you know, when they still had huge, huge names in boxing and this was like a big event. And these guys were were going for the win, and there was a, a genuine struggle, you know. And, you know, one of the things we talked about on this show is, is the way that wrestling has evolved, and some people can accept it, and some people don't. And I know Barry, because of the, the TV service he has now, he doesn't get AEW. And, you know, I still watch the AEW show. I watch a lot of it on Fast Forward uh, because they'll, you know, get to somebody that I enjoy watching. I'll watch that, and then there'll be something I don't really care for. So I kind of fast forward through that. But, you know, like – we talked about the young bucks before Barry and, and I'm going to throw this out there. I hadn't planned on this, so I'll get your uh, opinion. Okay. Uh, unfettered, if you will, Barry, do you think, obviously when you look at the young bucks and you look at the style, they work, there's obviously a heavy uh, influence of like Lucha Libre. Okay. Uh, and, and of course they have Mexican guys uh, on the show and, you know, I'm not saying that these guys aren't good wrestlers or good workers. Uh, of course they are, but, Let's be honest, they work a completely different style than what Barry and I grew up in watching. Do you think in some respects for the good stuff that being exposed to Lucha Libre has done for some in the business, do you think there's also a downside by incorporating, as some people call it, the flippy shit? Do you think there's been a negative influence on American wrestling uh, by Lucha Libre and people being influenced by Lucha Libre? Uh, and, and this is certainly a uh, this is certainly open for interpretation when it comes to an opinion on something. Of course, like this. I would say the answer is yes, but professional wrestling has always evolved. What what your great grandmother watched in the 1940s or 1930s was not the product that we watched in the 70s. That you know, uh, and and certainly- trust me, you're you're absolutely right on that, Barry. If our grand, a great grandmother was watching stuff that was going on in the seventies, I'm sure they would sit there and say, "What the heck is this? Absolutely. This is not what I." You know, and that is, you know, nothing is as constant as as change and and time. Uh, you know, people hate change, Jeff. That's of the, course, you know, yeah. Rule one: everybody hates change. Nobody likes change, and it's it, you know. So let, why don't we do this? Why don't we look at the people who are complaining about? let's say the style of wrestling that the young bucks are doing, right? These are people that, uh, that are probably over 20, maybe even over approaching their thirties and, or certainly into their thirties and older. So, because this style has been around now for the last, let's say 25 years, I think WCW did a great job with bringing in a lot of the Mexican Lucha stars. I thought they were the highlight. They always got buried, but sure. Uh, but I, ECW but I, also did. They brought in the, yeah, uh, the Lucha guys. Yeah. yeah which and, and of course, the dichotomy of that is, is that people love them in ECW, but they hate them everywhere else. The same as Ring of Honor, where people loved a lot of this in Ring of they, they, The Bucks were popular in Ring of Honor. Now the Bucks are the Antichrist on a lot of different levels. Professional wrestling is not the professional wrestling. Professional today 
is not the professional wrestling that you grew up with unless you're 20 years old. So, look, it's much different than what we watch, but doesn't wrestling have to evolve to something different? Because, Jeff, if you and I were watching the wrestling, let's say wrestling didn't evolve. Because, again, you know, you read some of these comments and it's like, oh, the Bucks are killing wrestling. And there's this should be, you know, everybody's an armchair booker, right, Jeff? Isn't everybody an armchair booker? <clears throat> I have no idea <clears throat> what you're talking about. Exactly. And and it, nobody nobody enjoys something that's different than what they what what brought them into wrestling. So if you and I were watching wrestling from the 1930s right now, Jeff, and wrestling had not evolved and we were watching, you know, a, a match, we would be bored out of our minds. We would be begging for somebody to do something and that something would not occur. So, you know, professional wrestling now it is what it is and every time there's an attempt People will say, oh, I want wrestling to come back the way it used to be. And we we know it can never happen. No, no. But exactly. There's just no way it can. Nothing. You can't go back in time and bring back the things the way that they used to be. But everything's evolved. Jeff, you're a football fucking expert. Has football evolved in the last 50 years? Come on. Not none whatsoever. No, I'm just <laughs> exactly. So, well, Has, let me ask you. Let me ask you this. Sure. Do you think that the evolution of the wrestling business would have been as shall I say, stark and dramatic as it has been since when you and I started watching, if UFC had never come about? Do you think it would be more similar or would it have just gone in a different direction? Excellent question. And, I try. And one that's not really easy to answer. I don't know. And, and, and I'll say this. I, I think for the most part, and this is a, you know, every time that, something like a UFC gimmick has tried to be incorporated into pro wrestling. There's been a lot of, uh, I would say it's been met with mixed, mixed success. And there's been some guys that have been able to pull it off. And I think that goes back to the earlier days of UFC, but you look at a lot of the UFC gimmicks. Now this shit doesn't work. It, and it's so blatant. And WWE was trying, I don't know if you're even aware of this. They were doing something like a fight club. And this is maybe six months ago. I don't know what the time frame was. And it was Monday nights and they would go into a separate uh, arena, whatever they want to call it. And Shane McMahon was there and wrestlers would come up and they would. Uh, these were worked uh, MMA fist fight type of matches. And it was just it was a horrible concept. And the WWE wound up pulling the plug on it after maybe six weeks, maybe even sooner. But they, after the first two weeks, their statement was, we believe this could be the future. We're committed to this. And then quietly it was just dropped. Uh, Pardon me. Let's remember what the first rule of Fight Club is, Barry. Never discuss Fight Club. Thank you. So, all right. So I would say that both of us highly recommend this match with the caveat and understanding this is old school wrestling, folks. And when I say old school wrestling, I don't mean uh, the Tupelo concession stand brawl. Uh, I mean, this is two guys that know what the hell they're doing. They've been doing it for a good, uh, probably at least 15 years, uh, if not way more than that. Uh, two guys that are masters of their craft in the ring. And if you look at it from that context and with those eyes wide open, do you like that movie, by the way, Barry? I no. think you will. I think you will appreciate what you're looking at because it is completely different than what you see now on either the WWE or the AEW or you know uh, what do you call uh, what the fuck is it that the 
the one guy I always watches every week. Where's the DNA? I can't even, I never watched that show, so I don't even know what the hell show it is. We've got somebody in our group that every week posts, oh, don't forget to watch TNA tonight. We get like two responses on his pay, on his post. But uh, Impact, thank you. Thank you, Lou. Jaworski. Yeah, so uh, yeah. Steve, Steven loves to watch Impact. Uh, and he apparently is one of like maybe three people in the group that watches. So, Barry, it is now time for us to do a deep dive into, oh, this week in CWF history. We are talking July 13th. Barry, tell us what the heck we've got going on in CWF. Absolutely. So this is a uh, this is a fun day, and and there is a card that I pulled out that I caught my eye uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, it was 1964, so it's, we're talking July 13th, 1964 in Orlando, NWA World Title Luthez defending against John Tolis. And that is so intriguing to me. John Tolis, who everybody remembers from the Los Angeles territory, uh, and then he was part of the Herb Abrams UWF, and I think was even in the WWF. Hey, coach. Coach with a whistle, which, you know, it's just a waste of, uh, of his talents. But I, I'm so intrigued by that match. And the match that is right underneath that, Danny Hodge defeating Chris Tolis. So the Hodge-Chris Tolis match, and I don't have the newspaper clipping in front of me, but it intrigues me because I think it was scheduled to be an NWA junior title match. And as it turns out, two days earlier, Danny had lost the title to Hiro Matsuda at the Sportatorium. So this obviously would then not be a title match here. I'm not taking Danny's place, but intriguing in the fact that you've got the NWA world's champion and the NWA junior champion defending their titles against a pair of brothers that really struck out at me. Another match that struck out at me, which is two years earlier, 1962 in Miami beach, Jeff heel versus heel uh, for the NWA world's tag team titles, the assassins, versus Kurt and Carl Von Brauner. That one had to be a barn burner. And speaking of the assassin, we'll be seeing Jody Hamilton in Tampa on November the 6th. So I'm very excited about that, Jeff. That's a nice uh, segue. Well, and I, at the end of this segment, Jeff, I'm going to reveal our latest addition Ooh, to the my. fan fest. This is breaking news. You are hearing it here first. I'm going to do it first. It's uh, No, no, I'll wait. All right. But before it gets to Facebook or any other type of social media, you are hearing it on this fine podcast. Uh, Fort Lauderdale has a pair of matches that I love. 1973, you've got the Florida title versus Florida TV title. Paul Jones defending number one, the, number one defending the Florida title against Buddy Colt. And I've said this numerous times, certainly if you're a member of the CWF Archives Facebook group, I will beat this into your head so you'll never forget it. The matches between Jones Colt and if you throw Jack Briscoe into the mix and there was a period where all three of these guys were facing each other on a nightly basis, just alternating the opponent. Uh, that was the best wrestling I probably ever saw. The, and certainly maybe the most realistic at that stage. Fantastic. Uh, the semi main has got Ron Fuller, old friend, the Tennessee stud friend of the show uh, facing the great Mephisto while his brother, Robert Fuller, is a few hundred miles away on the same night in Tallahassee, main eventing with Gorgeous George Jr. in a lights-out match. Mm. That one intrigued me. Uh, moving down, check out this card. I like this. 71376 in Tampa. Got a main event here. Now, check out. it. These are two odd teams 
for the most part. The heel side has got the Missouri Mauler and the Assassin. Nothing odd about that because these two are half-brothers. Uh, but they're joined by the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion, Terry Funk, which then makes that an odd trio. But look look at who they're facing. Dusty Rhodes, Greg Valentine, and Ray Candy. And that's an odd uh, trio right there in a lot of ways. Uh, undercard has Jack Briscoe against Ray Stevens. We discussed that uh, mat- that matchup a few weeks back. It had to be great. But you also got Steve Kern versus Bob Roop. This was the feud that started with Bob Roop calling Steve's dad a coward uh, for being a prisoner of war in two different wars. Uh, so that to me is just, you know, that's one of the best feuds I ever saw. Uh, got a couple other matchups here. We're going to look at 1985 Fort Lauderdale. Jeff, might you have been at this card, 1985 Fort Lauderdale? NWA World Heavyweight Champion, the Nature Boy, Ric Flair, defending his title against Billy Jack Haynes. With an ad- addendum there, Billy Jack apparently still MIA, uh, al- almost going on a year, maybe a little longer. No one has seen from him. Nobody has heard from him. So uh, we certainly wish our best for Billy Jack. But, Jeff, do you think you were there? Uh, I got to tell you, by 85, the promotion, in my personal view, had started really going down the hill. What? And I got to tell you, I probably didn't. So I'm curious. Did he? I know that when he went to world class, he began using the name uh, Billy Jack Haynes and then Billy Haynes for a while. Uh, he did he still use just Billy Jack or was I know it sounds like really kind of nitpicking, but was he Billy Jack Haynes or Billy Jack at that point? So I think he was Billy Jack Haynes. And the reason I say it, when we first saw him, he was Billy Jack. And and I think, in my opinion, that was kind of the way to go. You know, you go with Billy Jack. And then, as it turned out, when he left and came back, they added Haynes to his name. So I think at this stage, he was Billy Jack Haynes. Had to be an interesting matchup. Billy Jack was super over, decent worker, and whatever holes in his game usually could be hidden by a good opponent. So that's interesting. Uh, a couple other matches here, and then I want to get your opinion on something, too. Going to move to 86 Orlando. Cowboy Ron Bass and the Mass Superstar facing the Fabulous Ones. Interesting matchup because, as everybody knows, the Mass Superstar only in the state for about two weeks. And that's all we had him. So I like that one. Uh, loser leave town match. Lex Luger defeating the White Ninja. White Ninja Jeff, obviously. Kijimuto. Kijimuto. These two would uh, get to know each other in WCW. Uh, in just a few years, but we become, as Dave Meltzer described him, the great F and Mudo. Uh, so, you know, and he really was, Oh, he was unbelievable. He was unbelievable. And his, Hey, even as the white ninja, we knew we had something like this guy was good. Uh, but here's one Barry Windham defeats Ed, the bull Gantner and Ed, the bull Gantner is a guy that is, uh, that never transitioned out of CWF. I believe he was scheduled to go to Crockett. Uh, turns out he had serious kidney issues related to years and years of steroid abuse, and he wound up taking his own life, I want to say, by 90 or 91. It was somewhere right around there. But uh, the, the prediction on Gantner was that he was he was going to go to Crockett and probably going to get some sort of a push, and it just didn't materialize because of his kidney issues. My, so my question to you, Jeff, before I read off the last card— uh, my question to you, Ed the Bull Gantner, 
Could he have made an impact in Crockett? No. Gotcha. Uh, to me, Ed DeBogander was, uh, you know, rest his soul, was not some sort of game changer uh, in the ring. You know, I, I mean, he was a guy that they stuck him in a tag team with Ray Candy as Kareem Muhammad. Uh, in that role, he was fine. He's the kind of guy you could hide, uh, you know, if he had a really good partner, you know, like we've discussed, like Adonis and Ventura. He was the Ventura of the team. A guy with a, a good, you know, good physique, muscled up. But let's be honest, you know, he came out of the USFL. There was a uh, a belief that a lot of the guys that played on the lines, uh, you know, I'm not talking about guys like Reggie White, obviously, uh, who played, I believe, for the Memphis Showbuds, but a lot of guys that played on the offensive line and defensive lines in the USFL were basically gassed up guys that couldn't quite make the NFL. So they went down to the USFL, gassed up, got bigger, and tried to make it into the NFL from there. I'm not going to mention any names, but I think we all know who I'm talking about. So, you know, and I think Ed Gantner, I, I want to say, he did he play with Jacksonville, like the Bulls? Uh, maybe that was the team that he was with. But, you know. I, I think came, you're right, actually. I think he, he came in, and uh, I have no idea why I pulled that one out of my brainstem, by the way. Um, he came in. He was, you know, a, a, a guy that he wasn't ripped, but he was a big guy. And, you know, his work was, it was okay. It wasn't anything where you go, oh, yeah, this guy. Yeah, you could. Yeah. He was no Kiji Mudo. Let's put it that way. No, he, he absolutely wasn't. And as a worker, he wasn't, I, I don't think he was great. What I think he had was this bully type of charisma. Like it was a, uh, he looked tough. He looked, you know, there's a rhino comparison in some ways. And, uh, you know, it, rhino, uh, not exactly built like rhino, but stocky. As you just said, he was muscular, but he wasn't ripped. He was bulky. But uh, I'm going to give you a comparison. Sure. And he actually kind of looked a little like this guy too. Uh, Ed Wiskowski, Derek Draper. I think if, I think if he was bulkier, I think if you, if you took, maybe Crusher Liskowski's body and maybe put Wiskowski's fed on there with Wiskowski's head. Uh, boy, that's between Liskowski and Wiskowski. <laughs> I'm all fucked up. Uh, but that, yeah, he was that, that it's good. But I mean, Wiskowski was actually a good wrestler. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I was this, just talking I, about physical appearance. I think, I think Gantner had this weird understated bully charisma that I think if he was programmed right and he was booked correctly, you couldn't, he was never going to be your world champion. So let's not, you know, but I think you could have done something with him. I think he could have been a good opponent for Lex Luger's U.S. title and that kind of stuff. That's well, and, and let's be honest, this is not like a guy that they uh, stashed in someplace like Kansas City or Calgary, let him w learn how to work and then had him come to Florida to continue his education as a worker and then go up and, and, and put him in Crockett or he's yeah. got like a couple years under his belt. You know, and, and that's the problem with somebody like Luger. They were so, you know, in a rush to get a guy to the main stage that could counteract what they, you know, do the counter to Hulk Hogan that they rushed Lex Luger and they did that. And part of me understood the mindset of needing that and, and reaching out to them, but he wasn't ready. You know, and neither was Ed Wiskowski. That uh, Ed Wiskowski. <laughs> was Ed Gantner. Yeah, I think, I think you're affecting me now. Neither well, was Ed Gantner. And I wish, in hindsight, that that not only Lex Luger, but guys like uh, you know Ed the Bull Gantner, that they would have been able to go to a even smaller territory 
and you know and use it. The, the problem is, is if you go to a too small a territory, you know, you have fans that are like, why am I going to see this? I have guys that are just starting. You know, you really have to got have somebody that you know grabs hold or or it gives them a reason to keep coming back to the matches. And unfortunately, by the time they get to that point, they're ready to move on to another territory. You know. Yeah, it's in again. We're this is we're talking, you know, because at this stage we're talking thirty five years ago. We're never sure, going to yeah, see yeah. that, but hindsight it, is always twenty. Yeah, years. exactly. We can certainly do it. But I, I, you know, in my head, I always thought that Ed Gantner, and I, I didn't understand. I was like, where did whatever happened to this guy? And then very sad. He, I believe he moved to Colorado, and his mother, uh, his mother gave an interview. There was a big story on Gantner in the Orlando Sentinel. And this was right around the time, maybe a year after he committed suicide. And uh, this is when steroids were the hot topic about, you know, they, they completely fuck with you physically, mentally, and will cause you to do things. And uh, his mother fully put all of his health issues on steroids, but it was a really sad story. I still have this article somewhere uh, and I, I should dig it out, but I, I, you know, I was always curious whatever happened to him. And it's sad that he did take his own life based off of uh, all these health issues. Yeah. So, so Jeff, last card that I've got taking place in the beautiful city of Jacksonville, uh, Jacksonville, where your mother, father, sister, uh, niece, and many other relatives living in a, c- a city I drove through a couple of times recently. Did uh, you swing by to say hello to my uh, my family? No. I, I did it, but I I rolled down the window, I yelled hello, and I waved. Okay, that's good enough. Okay. All right. So uh, so you've got uh, you got a couple of great matches here. You've got Dusty Rhodes versus the Spoiler. This being Don Jardine. These two had a great program. I you know everybody talks about uh, superstar Billy Graham maybe being Dusty's greatest opponent. I'm going to go on a ledge and say that possibly the spoiler might be because uh, just a great worker knew how to work with Dusty. Dusty knew how to work with him. The claw was so effective on with Dusty's forehead. Uh, I loved it. Then you've got the tag team. So I've also said this a million times, Mr. Saito and Mr. Sato against Mike Graham and Steve Kern throw the Briscoe brothers into that. And all three of these teams were wrestling each other. Best tag team wrestling I ever saw in my life. And then a match, Jeff, that I'm going to say is arguably one of the most prolific in CWF history. This is 1978. Jack Briscoe versus Dory Funk Jr. No world's title on the line here, but these two wrestled, uh, I'm going to say, hundreds of times in CWF. In Jacksonville, as you know, Jeff, the city that Don Curtis made famous. Yeah, and you know, and, and Dory and Jack, much like Rock and Roll at Midnight, Flair and Steamboat, they could go out and have a match in their sleep, and it'd be better than probably ninety percent of the stuff uh, that's out there. So, Barry, I understand maybe you have a Jacksonville-related story for us. So we do. We're uh, you and I were uh, we're we're givers recently. We're givers, Jeff. If nothing else, what are we? Givers. We're givers. We're assholes, you, but you know, givers well, is what I'm. Yeah. Probably depends who you ask. If you, the majority of people would say that, but there, we get a couple that actually think we're okay. But uh, it, Jacksonville was an interesting city, and what Eddie Graham did for many years, Eddie Graham uh, in Cowboy Luttrell, I should say, but I think a lot of this was the Graham deal as well. Uh, they would give a city to a promoter. So, like, let's take for example Milo Steinborn in uh, in Orlando. They would work. They actually didn't give him. He they he actually had that city at first. But they would work with different promoters 
uh, until at some point Eddie Graham essentially took over the entire state and didn't have these satellite promoters in certain towns. So uh, Jacksonville was always uh, the best drawing city on a weekly basis. I don't know. Did you ever know that? Did I ever tell you that? I I did not know that, sir. No. So on a weekly basis, Jacksonville would draw anywhere between, let's say, six and ten thousand which is, you know, the next best city might be Tampa or Miami at around four to 4,500. So uh, on a weekly basis, Jacksonville was drawing the most. Uh, St. Pete probably drew the most, but that was a monthly show. So Jacksonville, major hub. And I think part of it was the connection to Georgia. You know, you know you're able, you're in Georgia right there. You're not too far off. Uh, but there was a guy that ran Jacksonville for many years named George Romanoff and George, George Romanoff. I forget what his real name. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't Romanoff, but he was going off of, I guess the, uh, the Russian czar who I believe, and I'm sure sweet Luke can fill me in on this. So one. you're saying there's no actual lineage between Nicholas and Alexandra, uh, Alexandria, uh, and, and the Jacksonville wrestling. There, there's not, but I believe his gimmick was that that's what he was trying to portray. And I want to gotcha. Okay. I forget what his real name, but it was nothing as uh, exciting as Romanoff Romanoff. So he promoted, uh, and he was also working with cowboy Luttrell and Romanoff was really the first Eddie Graham in a sense, because he was working with Luttrell and they started promoting all these other towns uh, in uh, in the state of Florida. Romanoff was killed in a car crash in 1950. And at that point, uh, not too long after, a guy named Jimmy Murdoch took over the town. And Jimmy Murdoch was a guy, not a big guy, so he wasn't like an ex-wrestler. Uh, but he was also promoting boxing in the town of uh, Jacksonville. So he became the boxing and wrestling promoter for the town and for many years was the the promoter on record only up until the 1960s when Don Curtis took over uh, and they booted Jimmy Murdoch out. I believe he still was doing boxing, but I'm not sure of that. But uh, he had some heat. He had some heat uh, with Eddie Graham. And what actually happened, and this was a pattern that we saw, is that for whatever reason, when Eddie was unhappy with a promoter, he would remove this promoter. It happened in several different cities uh, throughout the state over the years. Uh, My assumption is maybe they were taking too large of a cut. Maybe Eddie felt that they were skimming. I don't know. It's all conjecture. But Eddie would remove somebody and put somebody else in their place. So Jimmy Murdoch was removed and then Don Curtis was brought in. Well, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy, I I believe had been in Jacksonville. I don't know if he was a native, but had been there for years and he didn't take too kindly to this. And uh, he, he did a couple of things. One was he aligned himself with the IWA and this was the Eddie Einhorn version, uh, the guy that had owned the White Sox. And this was the promotion that made Mil Mascaris the world champion, which I believe he still holds at the age of 94 to this day. Uh, no- I think he has uh, broken the fabulous Mula's uh, record. Yes. Uh, yeah, so. Yeah, I think he has. So, uh, so Jimmy Murdoch aligned himself with the IWA, did a lot of publicity uh, to try to draw, and they did two shows in Jacksonville, and that was it. One and done. They did, they did two in Miami. Uh, I think they so they probably hit a lot of the big cities twice, and then they pulled out. They didn't draw 
what they expected. I don't know what they expected, you know, without having TV and, uh, you know, just very, very little promotion. But Jimmy Murdoch was a guy that still had local connections and uh, he filed an antitrust lawsuit against, uh, I guess, Deep South Sports, Cowboy Luttrell, Eddie Graham, the NWA, and probably anybody else he could have sued at that point. I believe this was all thrown out of court and there nothing ever came of it. So Jimmy passed away at some point in the 1970s, and Jimmy had kept every poster from every event that he had ever promoted in the city of Jacksonville. And this all went to his daughter. So his, mm, that's yeah, got to be good stuff. Yeah, it does. So his daughter got all these posters and uh, she sold them. And I'll say 20 years ago, and uh, she sold them to two different private collectors. And I'm happy to say that I actually bought from one of those private collectors. And I own probably 100, 150 of those posters. Uh, there, if you've ever seen him, Jeff, I've posted him. You'll see him occasionally on eBay. They're, they're from Jacksonville. They're, they're yellowed because of time. Uh, but they're generally in good shape. They've actually been affixed to a polystyrene on the backing to keep them, uh, in one piece. But, uh, these are treasures and she sold them. And I believe she has since passed on. Uh, but Jimmy Murdoch, you know, nobody knows. Everybody knows Don Curtis from Jacksonville. Nobody knows the legacy of Jimmy Murdoch or George, George Romanoff. Uh, but Jacksonville, what a great wrestling town in its day. Wow, that's uh, that's awesome stuff, Barry. Thanks for sharing that with us. So, Barry, uh, before we do the go home, want to give a shout out to a few of our friends that are Patreon subscribers, Barry. Yes, folks like William Merriweather. Paul Merrick, David Edelman, Ron Gardner, James Winter. These people are subscribers, and I want to shout out to them and give them a little thumbs up appreciation from Barry, Lou, and myself for your Patreon subscription. Thank you, gentlemen. Oh, and Barry, there's one last name here that I want to mention. Not sure if you will recognize this name or not, Barry. Uh, Reen Williams. Are you familiar with that person? I, you know, and when I saw that, when you sent me the list and I was like, so Jeff's sister is yes! a Patreon subscriber. By and, the way, I believe the yeah. only family member that is a Patreon subscriber. Yeah, but, you know, I don't know if that says about me. Huh? I, we also know that she's probably not listening to every show. So the fact that she did it just to support us, to keep us going, that means a lot. To I know it means something to you, but it, to me it means a lot. Uh, Ron Gardner, who you just mentioned, actually texted me and said, hey, is there a way that I could pay for an entire year? And I said, I don't we know. like that kind of thinking, Ron. We do. I said, I would have to check. I don't believe so, but I don't know a whole lot about Patreon, but or Patreon, whatever it's called. But again, we encourage you. Look, we know that money is tight. The pandemic, a lot of people lost their jobs. It's $5 a month, and it keeps your boys going. And to, hey, it'll get you a shout out on the show. So, hey. Five bucks. Go for it, right? Barry, Lou, and myself want you people out there to know that we are willing to accept bribes, graft, Absolutely. any of that kind of stuff, uh, if it'll keep our show going uh, for you, uh, the good listener. So, by the way, Barry, because we are a Peabody and Sherman award-winning podcast, I think I think two or three times uh, uh, award-winning, we never forget things, do we, Barry? Oops, maybe we did. Oh. So... Barry, do you have something you'd like to announce? Yes, but now I forgot what it was, Jeff, because 
we always forget, especially me lately, I forget everything, but we, we did want it. We want to make the announcement of the next legend that is joining us uh, at CWF Legends Fan Fest coming up this November the 6th, the beautiful Tampa suburb of Lutz, Florida. The hotel is something like the Marriott Residence Inn. Suncoast Parkway. Cold Point I, Village, something. Yeah. It's, you know, it's got like 50, so I don't know, you can find it, but you can certainly get information uh, on our page or you can go to a CWF archive. Or you can reach out privately to Dave Penzer. He would love for you to do that. Yes, you can do that, or uh, you can even reach out to me. But the next legend we are announcing, Jeff, it's a true legend. Yes, I am sometimes flippant with that word. Uh, I think I've referred to everybody and their mother as a legend at one point. Let, let, let me just do it. Can I do a, a drum roll? Here we go, Barry. Yeah. The person that you were going to reveal is. That was a very weak drum roll. Go ahead. It was a good one. Jerry Briscoe, ladies yes. and gentlemen. Gerald Briscoe, a former multi-time Florida tag team champion, U.S. tag team champion, North American tag team champion, Florida Eastern. television, Eastern, Eastern stage champion. champion. Florida TV title, Southern champion, uh, and just, you know, the guy's Georgia tag team champion multiple times. Jerry Briscoe, uh, really, there might be three or four guys that are still with us that I say are closely aligned with CWF. Jerry is one of those guys. So we reached out. Uh, Jerry's a hot commodity now, Jeff, since he's left the WWE. Uh, he has grown some pretty kick-ass sideburns. And uh, he is a hot commodity, but being that we are about 10 minutes from where he lives, he has offered to come and be a part of our show. So you're we paying are, trans, are you? We, <laughs> well, so you, funny you say that. Were you aware of what happened the last time, Jeff? And you probably weren't. Jerry, Jerry calls. So when we had Jerry at the Pat Patterson event. This scared the shit out of me. Jerry was, was still employed by the Federation. And that Friday night, he was scouting talent in Denver. Had a yes, morning, I do remember that. As a had a fact. morning flight to get back to Tampa, and I got to tell you, I was scared shitless because the whole event was built around he and Pat. So he calls us. It's about ten minutes of twelve, and says, "I landed. I'm driving. I'm on my way. Can somebody meet me outside to park my car?" I ran out there. It wasn't even a car. It was like a a massive semi. It was like this huge truck with huge tires. He throws the keys at me. He runs in and starts signing autographs and uh, taking photos. And I go and park his car. And Jeff, to tell you, that was part of the deal. I have to valet his car. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, I will offer up a, a rather funny, I thought, uh, Jerry Briscoe story. So it's funny. I happen to be doing a uh, the old rabbit hole uh, YouTube search. And I've been watching, uh, I think I mentioned it a couple episodes ago, some mid-Atlantic stuff. I started in 81 and I'm now into like March of 82. Okay. So Jerry and Jack are on, uh, you know, in the TV studio and they're working a wrestling match and it's Bob Caudle and Ray Stevens, uh, doing commentary. Okay. So, uh, Ray Stevens comes up with this little gym and Barry, I hope you are, uh, a big enough fan of the Briscoes to recognize what was said here. He says, you know, uh, Bob, uh, uh, Jack and Jerry both were great college wrestlers at OU, and then they transitioned to the pro ranks. Jack and Jerry went to Oklahoma State. Oh! Yes. And when I heard that, I said, 
holy shit, Ray better hope Jack and Jerry didn't hear him say that. Because if you're from Oklahoma, if you call an Oklahoma State cowboy a sooner, them's fighting words right there, my friend. So I popped for that. I thought that was pretty funny. It's going to be great to have Jerry joining us again, Bear. Yeah, and I'll let you, this is, and we'll, we can close out with this. So when Jerry did the last event, we actually booked him on a morning show that's based out of Orlando called Monsters in the Morning. And uh, the host of that is Russ Rollins. They've been on in one version or another. This show has been on for, I think, 30 years at this point. So it's really ingrained in the city of Orlando. You live in Orlando. You generally will listen to Monsters in the Morning. So we booked Jerry. And at the same time, his old alma mater, uh, alma mater was playing, I guess, uh, UCF. I, I'm assuming it was UCF. And uh Jerry gets on. There. It must have been UCF because certainly the Florida Gators wouldn't go out of state to play anybody good. Ooh, did I just <laughs> that? Yeah, I think he did. So, so Jerry gets on, and Jerry essentially starts trash talking the UCF quarterback, and <laughs> and, and and all of and it's dead air as he's doing this. And I guess the host Russ Rollins is messaging Penzer going, what did he just say? And I'm listening to this live and I'm going, holy fuck, we're not selling any tickets in Orlando today. So uh, a lot of fun, but that's Jerry. Jerry is, uh, I think he, Jerry's living and enjoying life currently. And uh, I'm real excited to see him. So Barry, now, because here at Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, we do not just stick to wrestling. Who? I got the McAdam reference. There it is. Yes. So last week, as you well remember, we somewhat controversially, yes, that's the way you said, uh, mentioned the article about the top 10 NBA players uh, in league history. Somewhat surprising. Uh, Number two was Magic Johnson. I mean, not that Magic Johnson wasn't a great player. He was. But the fact that he was number two behind Michael Jordan, I thought was a little little controversial. Uh, Matter of fact, as I mentioned to Barry before we started recording here, uh, reached out to someone today who said, how the hell is Wilt Chamberlain not number two? They changed the rules of the game when Wilt was playing. So Barry said, hey, I know somebody that can discuss and talk about the NBA, since we talked about it last week. And so we decided to invite Dale Spear to join us because Dale has an NBA connection. Dale, how you doing, buddy? Good. How are you guys doing? We are doing well, sir. So why don't you tell the folks how you first got uh, started, interested, and got involved with the NBA? Sure. Um, well, I'm, I'm not a sports reporter by trade. That wasn't my job. Um, I... I've worked, I worked 40 years in public radio, NPR news and, and creating different kinds of programming, but I always did sports on the side. I did university of Maine hockey, color commentating. I did some high school football, high school basketball stuff. Um, and when I moved to Orlando in 1990, I was vice president of radio for WMFE, the public PBS station in town. And, um, it was the second year of the Orlando magic franchise they they started up in 89 and this was 1990 pat williams the gm am i correct yes he was pat williams the gm and matty gukas was the coach at the time matt gukas later to be replaced later to be replaced by brian hill uh who's a great guy by the way um i just wish he would have had a longer coaching career because i think he got kind of kind of screwed in orlando but anyway um so my staff had covered the inaugural season and no one really wanted to do it in the next year. And I said, 
we got to do it. it. It's the NBA franchise. The only major sports we've got here in town. Uh, hell, I'll do it if you won't do it. And and I'm thinking, well, there are worse things than getting free tickets to sit courtside to get a catered meal and to get to go into the locker room afterwards. And hang yeah, it's a place. tough gig. I it's thought, a tough gig. I, yeah, I didn't have kids at the time, and I thought, I'm going to do this. And so I went to every, essentially, I might have missed one or two in four years, but every home game um, and sat first or second row most of those games uh, under the basket where – you get a whole different idea that's you, you sit under the basket. It's even, I've sat as close as like the fourth row and it's not the same. You're under the basket. They're playing the game you played when you were a kid. You, you just, you feel it. You just, you're part of it. And um, so I started doing the, the, the going to the, the games, going to the press conference afterwards and going to the locker, grabbing some sound clips and bringing them back to the station, writing up a, a feature. And we play it the next day. So, um, when I first started, Dennis Scott was our number one draft pick. He was the number four pick. Three D. Yeah, three D and funny. Former well. Georgia mean, Tech Yellow Jacket. Also, go ahead. That's right. A pretty, pretty good, pretty good college player. But he was fourth overall um, that year, nineteen ninety. And um, and then the next year we got the number one pick, and that was Shaq. And the year after that we got the number one pick, and that was Penny Hardaway. So it was a pretty good time to be there. Plus there were other cool people on the team through the years. Tree Rollins was on that team for a while, a couple of years. And the 12th man, I don't know if it was one year or two years, but the 12th man on that team was Steve Kerr. Yeah. And we used to joke, he, he, you know, he never played. We used to joke with him all the time and it was just kind of, you know, no big deal, but he went on after that to go to Chicago. Then obviously a great coaching career and, and, and all that. But um, no, it was, it was the kind of thing where I just felt like it was important for us to cover in the community, but also uh, I was a mark for it. So I, you know, the Celtics uh, uh, watching all that eighties basketball, that was my sweet seventies and eighties basketball, my sweet spot when I really loved it. Um, so um, the thing that they, the other thing they do at those games is uh, they'd have catered dinners mm. and they weren't, they weren't. Free food, food always tastes better, right bear? Free, right, yeah, but, free food is, it, let's be honest, too. If we're talking food, most food is great, but free food, Jeff, it's really the best, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Right. Please continue, Dale. Yeah, no, and so you you go to the, it'd be a little buffet line, kind of like college was or whatever, and um, you'd get your food, you sit down, and there'd be reporters from other, whoever the visiting team was from other cities, and you had all your sports guys, and then the color commentators and their broadcasters would come in and sit with you too. And you'd sit down, you'd be eating and Bob Cousy sit down beside you and you'd start talking to Bob Cousy or Tommy Heinsohn or Walt Frazier. It was like, Oh my God, I, I talk about marking out. These were my heroes. And I was able to sit there and talk to them. Um, you know, the, um, uh, the people that were there at the time was pretty amazing. Uh, Chip Carey was the play-by-play guy. You know, uh, he didn't do so well with the Cubs, but I'm just going to say, you know, yeah, well, he was, um, yeah, he, this was so 1990, he did it all the way through when I left it by 94. Um, and then another guy that I got to know really well when I was down, there was Stuart Scott. Uh Stuart was the sports guy for the, for the NBC affiliate in Orlando and Stuart couldn't sit still. And the radio guys 
either were in the second row or we were at the top of the, the bowl for like the Bulls and the Celtics and the Lakers, the really big games where they had too much visiting press. Uh, but Stu wouldn't sit in his seat. So he'd let me sit in his seat. So I'd be sitting in his seat all the time as he's wandered. He just would wander around the building. So that, that was kind of fun to get to know him. And then he went on to great stuff too. Um, but so it was, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, the couple of things, I can tell you a couple of stories about some, some incidents that happened when I was there. If you want well, to. Well, that's what we have for these two. Yes. Please. Okay. That's even better. Go ahead. Is okay. there any nudity? Um, any nudity? Um, not really. Um, I don't think I should tell the Shaq story that I, um, but yeah, you should. I, I put it this way. I've seen all their Johnsons. Okay. It's, it's kind of hard to go in the locker room. <laughs> you don't see that stuff. So, and, and, and just because they're big, doesn't mean they're big down below. I'll just say that. Oh, um, my. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just throw that out. Ratings. And, and some people would surprise you, Isaiah Thomas. Um, <laughs> well, he's always go, called the a fuck? dick, you know, so. Yeah, well, he, he certainly has become one. Um, but, uh, no, it was, uh, <laughs> uh, let me think. I was, one of the things that happened was in a preseason game, we were sitting second row, and um, there was like the Houston Rocket coaching staff sitting in front of us, or scouting staff, not coaching staff. And John Killalay, who was an assistant coach with the Celtics when when I think Bird played, maybe it was before that, but um, um might have been when Collins and those folks were playing. They were in the front row. Well, the, the arena is filled. There's 12,000, 13,000 people. And Shaq comes flying down the court after a loose ball. And the loose ball was coming right towards us. And Shaq made the save, jumped over the guys, Killalay and, and the, the Houston guys, and landed on our table. Now, those press tables are about a foot wide. So I'm grabbing Shaq's head. I've got his, my, his head in my hands. Two other guys have the rest of his body. And he kind of looks up and thanks, man, and jumps up and runs back. But I was holding Shaq's head in front of 12,000 people for about two seconds. And it was an amazing kind of thing. But I thought for a minute we were going to die. because uh, you know, he's He is boy. a large human being. I think we can safely say that. And speaking of sitting in that the second row, um, I was on ESPN one night. Uh, it was the night where Ronnie Cycli decided to pick a fight with Greg Kite. And it happened under the basket. I was in the second row again. They pushed the first row up against the second row. And I could have punched any of them. And, and I mean, it would have been easy. And there was a bunch of stuff they... They said that Kevin Lockery was in there throwing punches and things like that. No, Kevin was trying to separate them. The only people throwing punches were Cycli and Kite. And um, um, so I called my buddy up in Texas. I said, hey, watch ESF, ESPN tonight. I guarantee I'll be on it. And I was. Um, that was well, that, that actually you know, leads me to one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Uh, as you're sitting uh, courtside or in the rows very close, uh, best NBA fight you had a chance to witness live? Oh, that's it. I mean, that it's easily yeah. um, was that cycling yeah, kite because they I don't even recall many other fights that but that was a knockdown. I mean, that was nasty. Um, and and the rivalry between Orlando and Miami was was nasty at that time, too, because they were both, 
you know, uh, 89 franchise expandees, expansion teams. And, um, and so there just was not good, good feelings between the two cities or, or between the, uh, the two teams. So, um, I can well, now, I, um, I can now tell a tale, Barry, that I don't know if I've ever told you this when Miami got the franchise. Uh, and of course I think they started, I don't even know if they, they got this guy in the expansion draft or if they signed him as a free agent. But uh, so they have a meeting with prospective ticket buyers uh, at a, uh, a hotel and one of the meeting rooms or loud, you know, whatever. Uh, There's you know, about 100 people coming in and they introduced the very first player, I believe, that had signed with the Miami Heat. Barry, do you remember Pat Cummings? I sure do. Yes. Yeah. And I was at that meeting. I decided because uh, I was a poor working clerk of the courts that I was not going to buy season tickets. But uh, yes, I remember this. Sherman <laughs> was he the Doug- first one? Yes, Sherman Douglas, Ronnie Cycli. Oh, uh, uh, never world be Douglas. free. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, oh, wow. Good times, good times. Yeah. So, Dale, I was going to say in the group you posted your own top ten list uh, of your choice for the uh, all-time players in the NBA. And before we start recording, you said really this is the kind of thing that should be done a decade to decade. But if you came up, yeah. what was your list? What did, what would it look like? Well, I, let's see if I can remember it. Um, LeBron was number one. Jordan was number two. Larry Bird was number three. That much I remember. Okay. So um, where would you I, have had Wilt? Well, I put then I put the big men in the next group. Russell, Wilt, Jabbar uh, in that next group of players. And then I... Um, trying to think who I ended up putting on that list at the end. Um, Oh, Dr. J, I added, which wasn't on a lot of people's list. And I thought, did you ever watch him play? Yeah, I got to right. watch no, him was when incredible, he was in yeah. college. Oh, it was just unbelievable. Um, and um, and I added Maravich because I wanted to screw with people. Uh, but no, really. I did that Maravich work? Did anyone get upset? I'm not going to mention any names. But anyway, so uh, uh, well, did one you? Person said, one person <laughs> said it's not for the flashiest player. It's for the best player. And I said, did you ever watch him play? Oh, my God. He's like, it's the Archie Manning story all over again. A great superstar stuck in New Orleans, you know, not able to break out. Of I, th- I think that's happening currently, too, Barry. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it is. It is. You know, it, when I looked at his list, too, I think I agreed with the majority. I I don't know if you I said would. You did, anyway. Well, yeah, but I also like you, Dale, so I'm trying to, you know, but it's. Okay. uh I, I'm not sure if I would have put LeBron at number one over Jordan, but I got to say that we could discuss that for probably the next six hours. That seems to always be a massive topic of conversation. The one thing on your list that I think maybe generated the most controversy, and I can tell you that uh, our own Dave Lamont, uh, radio and television sports broadcaster for the last uh, four decades. For the worldwide leader. Worldwide leader yeah. in sports, absolutely. Dave said, Maravich, what? You had, you had yeah. Pistol Pete on there. So what was your rationale with that? Well, that was the, that he was just such a great player um, and was buried because he was in New Orleans for a long time. Um, but he, he just was an incredible player, I think. And, and, talk, and you talk about skill. I think he had an incredible skill, and I think he's been forgotten in history. Now, Oscar Robertson, Jerry West, um, sure. I mean, Carl Malone, I can go on. John Havlicek, one of might be my all-time favorite. Hondo. Players, along with Bird. Yeah, Hondo out of Ohio State. Um, I, I loved watching him play. And, and there, that's the point is that, 
you know, Maravich, you probably have to group in the 70s. And if you make a top 10 of the 70s, you might have someone like a Dave Cowens in there. You know, I don't know. Uh, maybe he'd rise that. Bill Walton would be part of that. And but then these guys aren't part of, you know, what? where's Walt Frazier? He's not in this top 10. I a mean, valid so, question, so, Barry. I think you'll agree. Clyde, where are you, Clyde? Yes, yeah. Sir. I mean, he was amazing. Um, and so I, I just think that that comparing eras, it's just it's ridiculous. It's, you're right. Um, yeah, because the, 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 I saw somebody comparing, talking about the Toronto Maple Leafs last one, their Stanley Cup in something like 1967. Well, the year they won it was the year the NHL expanded from six teams to 12 teams. So it wasn't a very high bar to get over because six of the teams had never even played before. And, and Toronto ended up, uh, that was the last Stanley Cup they won. Uh, that was something online. Some people were lamenting that fact. But um, anyway. Dale, would, would you believe that people compare professional wrestling, today's professional wrestling, to professional wrestling from 40 years ago and 60 years ago? The, Who are those the people? The same. Barry? Yes. The these people are crazy. I actually have a question for you, Dale, and this is going to be food-related with a basketball tie-in. And I think you may know the answer or may not. I'm not sure. Shaquille O'Neal had a personal chef when he played for the Magic. Were you aware of that? No. Gotcha. So not. He, uh, he had his own personal chef. And when he left Orlando, uh, the chef opened up his own restaurant called Lanyap Cafe. It was a Cajun oh, restaurant. Oh, I know that. Sure, and I know that. Yeah. How good was that? Was that, was that friggin' restaurant? That was, oh, it was great. Oh, it was uh, unbelievable. It doesn't hurt that I love Cajun food too, but yeah, um, but yeah, but, it was great. And Jeff, just to tell you too, so this was a Cajun Creole restaurant, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, being from Louisiana and uh, I believe the chef had come from Louisiana, opened up this really nondescript in a strip mall, nothing fancy, no big splashy, maybe 25 seats. The food was super reasonably priced. You could go for lunch or dinner every day and it wouldn't cost you an arm and a leg. And the food was probably on a scale of one to 10. It was a thousand. It was that good. Uh, only hmm. if you, yeah, the food really was that good too. Only if you had a talk with the chef, would you realize what, what his pedigree was as far as being Shaquille's personal chef? He had one photo on the wall of him and Shaquille. Otherwise, he wasn't blasting it everywhere. I got to tell you, I, my mouth is watering. That was fantastic food. So, Dale, another question for you, which is actually NBA-related. And then, Jeff, I'm going to toss this one over to you. Your favorite NBA moment that you've ever seen live. And it could be a game. It could be a, a, a record being broken. It could be a fight, as you just mentioned. Whatever it is. What was your favorite NBA moment that you saw live? Um, on the court, it was, I, I was fortunate. I covered the 1992 All-Star Game uh, for NPR in Orlando. Um, and that was the first year they had it there. And they, they uh, obviously three years in, but um, that was the year that magic had returned from um, after retiring because he had HIV and it was really controversial that he was playing in the all-star game. And at the end of that game, he and Isaiah were kind of screwing around about 35 feet up. I mean, they were way past the, the three point line. And as time runs out, 
Magic throws up this giant shot. It goes in. The, the crowd explodes. Um, and could there have been a more perfect ending to that game and that season for, for Magic, who went through all that heartache when it was discovered he had HIV, all the criticism he took for playing in that game. He won the MVP in that game. And my, my favorite off the, moment, uh, off the court moment was right after that was I went into the locker room and Charles Barkley was sitting there and Charles had been one of the biggest critics uh, about magic playing. He didn't think he should play. Um, and I don't think it was a health related thing. I think it was just that he's not a little, he's not playing. Anymore. He doesn't belong in the game. So I asked him, what did he think about magic winning the MVP? And I wasn't trying to be a dick. I wasn't trying to do a gotcha or anything. I just want, really wanted to know. And he couldn't have been nicer. He said, no, he played really great. He really deserved it. So I'm happy for him. And that was kind of fun just to be able to ask that question of him at that time. Uh, but also in, in that same, that same time, there were so many players that came in um, for the all-star game, you know, great players like Julie serving would be a, a great example. And they'd hang out in the locker room afterwards too. Um, I, I met Woody Harrelson and uh, Wesley Snipes after that game uh, in the locker room because they were filming White Men Can't Jump in Orlando at the time. And I didn't really know much about Wesley Snipes. I knew Woody Harrelson was, and I tried to get him a, I tried to get a, get a quote from him so I get some sound. And uh, he gave me a little, but not much. You know, it was kind of a brush off. And then he, he said, do you know Wesley Snipes? And I kind of went, no, not really. <laughs> so I kind of blew. <laughs> I'm sure I Wesley kind of blew right. Yeah, right. I got, well, he, he only had been in like that, what, Flight 261 or whatever that light movie was. He hadn't really done anything until White Men Can't Jump. But he, uh, Woody said something like, ah, I guess TV stars are bigger than movie stars, something like that. But really, I was just, I was. I was mad at Woody for blowing me off because I was trying to get him to give me a decent quote. And he was, you know, I'm sure higher. Barry, than let me was. ask you, I think the film that Dale's referring to is Passenger 57. Do you remember okay. the all-time quote from that movie by Wesley Snipes? I don't. I do not. When you play roulette, always bet on black. Ah. That was like the tagline for the movie. I remember that. So, That's hey, Dale. Good been a great time having you yes. join us we do really appreciate it buddy uh i got one last non-basketball question for you sort of wrestling related you said you lived in uh orlando uh early part mm -hmm. of the 90s maybe late 80s did you know that weasel ron lemieux no i did not um okay. you know it was funny because the just the the orlando time i had kind of fallen out of interest in wrestling it was you know i moved there in 1990 if you remember WWE was or WWF was all cartoon crap and WCW was going through hell at the time. And I, so I stopped watching and kind of basketball kind of became my obsession for about four years. So much so, and I'm so mad about this. I worked on East Colonial Drive on the east side of town, about two miles from the 80 Graham sports complex. And I never once went in it. So I feel like a dope, but, oh, wow. um, and just because that was timing. And then I moved to Minneapolis in 1994, uh, went to an indie show, met Mick Karch, and started doing TV commentating with him for about 10 years up there. So, well, listen, Dale, we really appreciate you joining us, talking some NBA with us and some uh, basketball history. Good stuff, my man. And we do appreciate it. You have a good one. No problem. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Dale.
See you guys. So now, Barry, we have officially crossed the finish line. We have finished episode 197. You about ready to go home, Mr. Rose? So, Jeff, you're saying in three more episodes, we have completed 200 episodes? 200 episodes! Oh, my. You know what this means? It may be time to reach out for a guest to celebrate with us, Bear. That's it. I am placing a call to uh, to Flair, to Hogan, to The Rock, to Stone Cold. Uh, one of those guys will be on with us. <clears throat> Probably not, but, you know, maybe we can. So uh, I'm sure the Hulkster would open up uh, and tell us everything we really wanted to know. Uh, you know, maybe give us a review of his uh, critically acclaimed restaurant there in the Tampa area. By the way, when you were in Tampa, just went by the Hulkster's restaurant. I did, and I and I don't know if I didn't even know he even had one. He's got a merchandise store on I. Maybe that's what Orlando. I'm thinking. What the hell do I know? I did not swing by though. You didn't want to get your Hulkster T-shirt, you know, yeah. shred it, you know, while you're at the beach, go yeah, and like have all the ladies be impressed. Anyway, so on that note, I will mention that Breaking Cafe with Bowden and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network for our producer, the sweet man, Lou Kippelman, out in the city by the bay, and my co-host, Barry Rose. I am the booker, Jeff Bowdern, and we will see you next week. Take it home, Lou!